So that was the best decision of my life, I guess, one of the best decisions of my life. Because had I not left Turkey in March 2016, there is no doubt that I would be like my colleagues who have been unlawfully and unjustly uh, jailed in Turkey for at least five years now. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us here at the Caves of Altamira for episode 10. Um, I know it's been a little while since I've been able to upload an episode. I've actually recorded this um, almost a month ago, but uh, it's just taken me some time to get around editing it. And I really did want to make sure I got things right, because I think this is, um, of course, I think all the episodes are good and important. But I think this one in particular um, is really coming at an important time in terms of thinking about the way politics and democratic politics or democratic backsliding, whatever you want to call it, is um, occurring around the world and taking on various different forms, but also showcasing some similarities at the same time. And today, my guest is someone that I had the good fortune to share an office with and go to grad school with at Temple University many years ago. As we all know, uh, life goes on. We went our different ways, um, you know, kept vaguely in touch, but we haven't been in really close contact for years now. Um, but I thought about Sevgi um, when, it, when I started thinking about guests that I would like to have on the show. And I remember years after we had um, spent time together at Temple, I saw that she had published a very bold and impressive op-ed in the New York Times and um, talking about the, uh, the, the breakdown of democracy and corruption and other issues going on in Turkey at the time. And knowing what I knew about the political situation in Turkey, I was really impressed with her taking such a bold stand and becoming such a global voice um, on matters of democracy and politics within Turkey and, and more broadly. Sevki's joining us today, and I, and I think she has a t story that at once, to me, is very uplifting, um, but it is also very worrisome and scary. And, and it's uplifting because it's a story of someone who... Um, held positions and and had a seat at the table in, in some of the higher places of government within Turkey and um, left that to go work in the field of media and journalism. And she's going to, uh, she downplays her you know, heroism or, or, you know, kind of part in the story. But I, I, I find it very admirable um, that she went this route uh, and ultimately came very close to finding herself um, imprisoned. She was targeted by the government, um, actually, you know, was threatened with a jail sentence and um, had to flee the country under duress um, and is now living um, in exile in the United States. And it's uplifting again to think about someone who was willing to take a stand and willing to really risk so much for something they believe in, for something they felt was worth fighting for. And I know a lot of us, myself included, would like to think under similar circumstances we would act in that way. But it tends to be that it's often a very few, a very select few, who are actually willing to take those kinds of actions. And, and I think Sevgi is, is um, a person who has shown a willingness to do that. And it's something that I find um, not only impressive, but um, important. And, and that gets to the more worrisome side of it, because I think for a lot of us, for better or for not, I mean, I think probably obviously for not, um, these are questions that we might all be facing more and more um, as time goes on about where are we, where do we stand in these issues and how far are we willing to go and how much are we willing to risk? Um, because this, the, the worrisome part of Sevki's story is just how quickly and the pace and the Kind of it, you know, happening rapidly, but also in these gradual incremental steps that Turkey went from a not perfect democratic society or necessarily like ideal democratic society, but from a fairly open society where she was felt free to write and critique the government to a society where she was fleeing the country and um, worried about being 
placed in prison indefinitely, which is a situation facing many of her former colleagues, right? And I think that's something that we can see similar patterns at different stages at different places around the world. So I think this is a really important conversation. I think it's really fortunate that we're able to have someone with Sevgi's experience and direct knowledge of these events and her insights into them. So um, before we jump over to the conversation, um, let me just tell you a little bit more about um, Sevgi. Sevgi Arkacesme, I'm saying that the best I can, is a Turkish political journalist. Um, she was the dismissed under duress again, editor-in-chief of today's Zaman. It was the largest English daily in Turkey and was brutally taken over by the regime in March 2016. Um, in terms of her education, she received a BA in political science from Bilkent University in 2001, which is in Turkey, and holds a master's degree in international relations from Istanbul Birgi University, and a second master's degree in political science from Temple University, which is where we met. After graduating from Temple, uh, she, she held a position at the major U.S. think tank, the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., Following that, she returned to Turkey and worked in the office of the president between 2008 and 2011, largely as a special assistant to the first lady. Following that, she held a position within the Turkish Ministry of Foreign Affairs before switching to her role as a journalist in the media in 2012, where she was a correspondent for today's Zaman, um, eventually becoming editor-in-chief of that, and wrote columns for the Daily Zaman and Today's Zaman until its confiscation by the government. Once again, I just want to say I, I really appreciate that we are able to have Sevgi come on and tell her own story and tell the story of what's been going on in Turkey, not only through her own eyes, but um, as a personal experience, but also with her keen and sharp insights um, born of her years of working as a journalist. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation. Okay, Sevgi Arkacesme, welcome so much to the Caves of Altamira. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's, it's good to hear from you uh, years later. I know. It's so good to reconnect and catch up. And I, I'm really excited to have you on the show. And um, we were just having a brief chat before we went live here about, you know, I remember uh, years ago reading um, a column you had written in the New York Times. Maybe I'll try to track a link down to it and put that in the show notes. And one thing that I remember from that was, I was as I was saying, is I was really proud that someone I went to grad school with and um, had shared an office with once upon a time was now in this global conversation on the on the pages of the New York Times. But um, even more so, I, w I was really impressed because the writing was indicative that you were doing, you know, what for lack of a term, doing real work, doing real politics, real advocacy for human rights, for the advancement of people's, you know, protecting people's freedom and liberty and, and so forth. So all of that led me to understand that you had really, in some ways, taken some risks and in, in, in your work in Turkey. And I just, um, I'm always interested in people who are who are willing to to cross that line and really put themselves out there um, in the name of justice, in the name of freedom. Um, I think it's one thing we all maybe like to think we believe in, but uh, honestly, very few of us really are willing or have had the opportunity maybe to do that. So I'd just like to hear a little bit about your experience. Uh, sure. You know, um, I mean, I don't want to sound like a hero because I don't think that I am, but uh, it's true that I, uh, I've been I've been going through a lot. Uh, it's been a trauma because, um, as you know, right now I'm a journalist in exile. I'm not an active journalist anymore because I, it wasn't easy. It wasn't possible to find a job after I, I had to leave Turkey in 2016 as a journalist. Uh, media is already a difficult landscape for everyone, especially uh, for an immigrant or um exiled journalists abroad it's very difficult there are extremely limited job opportunities so right now i can't uh work as a journalist but once you are a journalist you are always a journalist so mm. i still continue to um youtube videos in turkish i try to um 
I, I try to do advocacy for human rights and oppression in Turkey uh, on Twitter in Turkish and in English. So basically, I'm still trying to speak up for the people who are severely oppressed in Turkey and persecuted because of their um, uh, political views and uh, just basically because of their identity. When uh, we started to uh, receive pressure from the government uh, in late 2013, actually, I switched to journalism only a year before that. I just I kind I was kind of a latecomer because before before that I was a bureaucrat. I used to work in the office of the president, of course, not this one, <laughs> the previous one, and I worked at the Ministry of Turkish uh, for Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Turkey. So I kind of switched from, made the switch from bureaucracy to media. Uh, this is, which is very unusual because people usually look for secure jobs in bureaucracy. So it's the other way around. The reason why I wanted to switch to media was because I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to continue my career as a bureaucrat anymore because when you are in bureaucracy, um, I mean, you are not officially part of the government, but you cannot speak your mind either. And I am the type of person who likes to speak her mind. So that's how I switched to media. And I was always wanted to dream of becoming a columnist. Uh, but funny thing, uh, I became a journalist when things began to get uh, get even worse in Turkey. So when the um, Erdogan government was implicated with massive corruption um, uh, investigations in late 2013, uh, basically held uh, the media group that I was working um working for he held he held the group responsible for this um massive um corruption investigations and that's how he waged the war, war against us so if you ask me um what i have done what would i have done if i had known that i would end up in exile i don't know i'm not really sure i don't think that i would side with uh with an authoritarian government uh, but I'm not sure if I if I knew the cost. I don't know if I would be, you know, this kind of brave or reckless or audacious, however you name it. Right. So, yeah, uh, sometimes you just start a struggle without really thinking about the, um, uh, without the consequences. And for mm. many people, it's not, a, it's, a, it's not a very smart thing to do, I guess. So people, <laughs> and I can't really blame people because people, I mean, Obviously, people, you know, individuals are rational uh, actors and they try to secure their future and their families. Maybe at the time because I was single and I had no child. So that made things maybe easier uh, to fight against all by myself. So but right now here I am. But unfortunately, this is a very sad story. I was able to save myself uh, from the worsening um, like situation in Turkey. I left in a very timely manner, even before this infamous coup attempt in July 2016, because, right. of course, you're, I should not be assuming that your viewers or your listeners know about the story in Turkey. They don't have to. Uh, so basically what happened after this corruption investigations, I'm simplifying this process, uh, Erdogan just increased pressure against our newspaper more and more, uh, he was targeting the newspaper, the columnist. I mean, of course, it, it's, it was not limited to us, but we, it, our news media group was the largest target. And um, they finally, they shut down the newspaper and seized, actually unlawfully confiscated the newspaper in March 2016 with a police raid. And I tried to do a periscope uh, broadcast um, from, because... Unfortunately, the rest of the media was silent. They turned a blind eye to the situation in Turkey, I mean, in our media group, because uh, they didn't want to have the same destiny with us. So there was not only, there was not much coverage, much media coverage uh, from Turkey, from inside Turkey, but there were some international outlets, not some actually, almost all of the international media groups were there. They sent their representatives. So it was, it made, it made news in the world because it was the largest media group in Turkey. So it was brutally seized. And the next day, uh, there were already so many journalists in jail in Turkey. And because our uh, media group was accused of, quote-unquote, terrorism or sponsoring terrorism, you know, this is the 
like the regular playbook of any dictator, right. you know, anyone, all of the, like anyone who is uh, opposing the regime could easily be labeled terrorists. Uh, that's why I hate this label. And I, I caution everyone, uh, you know, to be careful about these kind of labels, you know, traitor, terrorist, enemy of the state, enemy of the people. Uh, these are kind of um, typical like uh, labels by any authoritarian government. Anyway, so I made the decision to leave Turkey because I realized that um, the threat was becoming more and real for me personally because I was the last editor-in-chief of this English daily in Turkey. There were only three English dailies in the country at the time. And because I was one of the um, you know leading names in the paper, I knew for sure that I would definitely face jail time. And even before that, in December 2015, I was already sentenced to suspended imprisonment for over one and a half, almost two years, actually, oh, wow. because of my tweets. Believe it or really? not, the so-called court, uh, you know, um, they sentenced me because of a comment left under my tweet. Uh, because wow. I was criticizing the prime minister of the time at the time, Erdogan was so the president. that would be Erdogan was prime. No, minister. Erdogan was the prime minister. So Erdogan just uh, rose to presidency um, uh, presidency in 2014. Right. He was the prime minister for so so long. Uh, Turkey switched from a parliamentary system to presidential system arbitrarily because Erdogan wanted to control more power. That's a whole other story. But uh, he had this puppet prime minister. Uh, who sued me over my tweets, and it was a comment left under my tweet. It was just a regular criticism. Just, uh, I mean, if if people uh, saw all these tweets against the president in the United States, they would just um, yeah go uh, go mad, I guess, in Turkey. But in Turkey, unfortunately, freedom of expression is not that internalized, and judiciary is extremely politicized. So I al- al- so I already faced uh, suspended imprisonment. So I knew that they were going to go after me along with some so many other colleagues. So that was the best decision of my life, I guess, one of the best decisions of my life, because had I net, not left Turkey in March 2016, there is no doubt that I would be like my colleagues who have been unlawfully and unjustly uh, jailed in Turkey for at least five years now. Well, so some of them are still in prison. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And even though, first of all, they are arbitrarily, they are political prisoners, you know. And, right. uh, so these are, though, and just to be clear, these are people, I, I just for our listeners, I mean, to be clear, these are people who are like writing newspaper columns, covering exactly. corruption. Reporters. So this is these are not people who are out like throwing Molotov cocktails or oh, anything. No, just, no, no, no violence right. at all. No, just to be no. clear, yeah, about yeah, the sure, severity sure, of this. Sure, sure, sure. And unfortunately, even though they serve time unlawfully, right now some of them are not even released after serving their time. So they are literally held as political prisoners in Turkey. So many of them, and Turkey is uh, one of the leading uh, one of the leading jailers. Um, I mean, if not the if not the like the leader of the uh, jailer of journalists in in the country. And this this slide to dictatorship has been very very fast. In a nutshell, I think it's all because Erdogan wanted to save him and his own family from the corruption allegations because they have been extremely corrupt and it's becoming more and more evident. And they had to stay in power. They had to stay in power at the expense of rule of law and democracy in Turkey. Well, I want to circle back um, now to a few things. Like One thing that came up in in hearing you talk is I'm interested in hearing from, you know, you you, you grew up in Turkey and you're obviously kind of, you know, we're familiar with the the kind of political culture and society Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. on the note of what you're saying, this kind of, you know, rapid slide into authoritarianism, I'm, I'm really interested in terms of relative to what your expectations were, what your understanding of kind of the mores and norms of the kind of political culture and society within Turkey how shocking was it to you um, to see how the kind of persecution and mm-hmm. and imprisonment and threats mm-hmm. um, and so forth against journalists? Like, it, I'm just curious. Into something like ten years ago, was that like unthinkable? Is this did this just kind that's of come out of nowhere? That's a great question because that's exactly was the case. Uh, because, okay, for your listeners, I want to simplify things. Turkey is in the middle, like, uh, is, is like a bridge between Middle East, Asia, and Europe. 
It's considered uh, Eurasia, and it's literally a bridge between two continents, right? As one of my supervisors, when I used to work at Washington, in Washington, D.C., at the think tank, uh, he used to say, for someone who comes from the West, Turkey is like East. For someone who comes from the East, Turkey is like West. Uh, wow. So yeah. it's, it's, it's so true. It's still true. So um, it's, it's a... It's a very unique country in that respect. It has a long history. Uh, it was established uh, on the legacy of the Ottoman Empire. There was a lot of paranoia, uh, paranoia uh, over uh, like um, territorial integrity, uh, enemies surrounding Turkey. It was this kind of nationalistic mentality. And Kurds have always been oppressed. But you know, for someone like me who was kind of privileged because I was born and raised in Turkey. I was Turkish. I was Muslim. I was Sunni. Uh, so I was not uh, a threat against the regime by any, mm. any definition. So obviously, Kurds have been oppressed for so long, especially in the southeast part of Turkey. And there has been a separatist movement going on. Uh, but it's mostly because Kurds were de- deprived of, of their equal citizenship rights. So my, but my point is, Turkey has never been a fully democratic country. It had its own massive problems. And it was not a rule. It did not have a rule of law. I mean, it was established in 1923 as a secular republic. It was secular. It was the only secular country, secular Muslim country in the region. Uh, so that's why it was unique. It's, it has been a NATO member since 1952. Uh, so it was part of the Western alliance for so long. Uh, it was part of the, you know, I mean, it had borders with the Soviet Union, right? So it had an important geopolitical location. It was an asset, you know, it was a very important ally for the West. But domestically speaking, even though it had electoral democracy, elections was fair uh, and and uh, open, fair, free up until recently, uh, Turkey was considered a democracy, kind of a uh, like developing the country and uh, democracy, but it was not a, as in political uh, science um, terminology, it was not a cons- consolidated democracy. So it was it was work in progress, right? But we had right. hope uh, because Turkey was also striving to become a part of the European Union since 1960s. Yes, it was a tricky road uh, full of bumps and... Uh, and I have to put some of the responsibility on the European Union because they were not really uh, eager to accept Turkey because it was really difficult to digest such a large Muslim kind of Eastern population, right? I mean, it's, it's geographically partially European, but it's a mixed bag. So I can understand it more, more than that. It was not ready economically or politically to become a part of the European Union. But at the same time, in early 2000s, countries like Romania, Bulgaria, uh, you name it, there is a couple of more. So they were not, they were even in worse situation than Turkey, but they were accepted. So that kind of led to resentment in Turkey. They said, oh, this is a Christian, I, I hate this expression, but quote-unquote, Christian club. They don't want us because of our identity. So, uh, so but despite everything, Erdogan, being, uh, having, a, having an Islamist background, ironically enough, when he came to power in 2002, late 2002, his government was the, uh, it was a reformist government, and uh, he uh, undertook all these uh, European Union uh, reforms that that were that were part of the integration with the European Union. So he took his government took serious steps. And initially, his government was supported by the European Union, by the Western Alliance, by the Liberals, by the Kurds, by the non-Muslims in the country, which is a small minority, uh, and by like. Um, the Gulen movement, uh, which was uh, which was the inspiration behind the media group that I was working for. So all these people, there was a, a large coalition that was supporting Erdogan because he was doing the right things. 
Can I can I hop in? Sure, can sure, I hop sure. in right here? Um, just because I think there's just for um, to to add a little bit of um, a little bit more of the background. Am I correct in my understanding that that when you say Erdogan like had this kind of reformist support and kind of coalition? My understanding um, of kind of recent Turkish political history is, or like the last hundred years or so, is that the regime that um, established modern Turkey in, in, as, a, as a modern state in 1923 or what exists as Turkey now was a military regime. Um, you know, exactly. many people are familiar with Ataturk and yeah. that the military was meant to be the kind of central organ of political organization in society and that um, even whatever kind of politics happened or democratic politics, the military was meant to serve as a kind of ultimate guarantor of um, the state of Turkey. Exactly. That's the that's yeah. That's the key word. They considered themselves constitutionally and as part, you know, as the founding fathers of Turkey or founding right. father because there was only one, eventually, Ataturk. Um, the military considered itself as the guardian of the system. So whenever whenever politics went wrong, of course, I say wrong from their perspective, right? It's very relative. So. Whenever the military thought that the regime was under threat, uh, let's say threat of, um, let's say in 1970s, leftist movements, communism in 1980s afterwards, let's say religious extremism, according to them, or any threat that, that the military uh, deemed like uh, important, they didn't mind interfering. So Turkish uh, near political history has been marked by constant interruptions almost every every decade. One thing that's kind of piqued my interest in even thinking about this now is that even though obviously they are on the far extremities of um, the Eurasian or Asian landmass, um, it's very similar to Korea in terms of the the authoritarian regime in Korea and the military um, being seen as at once kind of this guarantor of political stability, but as similar, and, and again, in my limited knowledge of Turkey, as kind of this vanguard of quote unquote modernity. You know, in Korea, the the military regime positioned itself as we're going to throw out all of these old Korean traditions that are pre quote unquote pre-modern and, and irrational. And we are going to create a quote unquote rational mm -hmm. modern state. No, sounds very, I think, I, I think you just nailed it because it sounds very accurate. I think all the modernization theories or our experiences have this uh, similar uh, breaking up with their past, right? I mean, uh, Turkey, modern Turkey had the uh, legacy of Ottoman Empire, but they, Ataturk denied it. Denied it in the sense that, okay, now we need to establish a secular modern country. And he enforced secularism on a largely pious nation. And that created tensions because, you know, it was a top-down modernization. And as you know, as a political scientist, it backfired. Uh, that's why there was this tension between center and the periphery. So center, the elites and the uh, religious masses, uh, rural religious people who wanted to keep their Islamic values and Islamic lifestyle. On the other hand, let's say, just to give a specific example, um, of course, the wearing of Fez, this traditional Ottoman uh, no, headwear, headgear, is not part of religion, but it was part of the tradition in the Ottoman Empire. So when Ataturk came to power, he abolished it, and it became oblig it become became required to wear the Western style hat. As funny as it sounds, it was the law. Yeah, this is interesting because this is going back before the military regime, before even colonialism in Korea. One of the big modernizing reforms is Korean men, especially elite men, used to wear a top knot, and one of the you know, modernizing reforms was to ban men from, you know, they were ordered literally to cut off their top nuts. Very, very, very similar. So that was the same. And there was a backlash uh, in society because they were forced. So they had this resentment. And actually, Erdogan's regime, this uh, rise of political Islamism in Turkey is kind of a uh, result of this oppressive version of secularism. Because even though the majority of the Turkish society I mean, overwhelming majority of Turkish society is Muslim, and um, majority of Turkish women up until recently, maybe right now it's half and half, but they were wearing this religious headscarf. And ironically enough, up until 19, up until Erdogan government, women in headscarf, religious, head, religious headscarf, were not able to 
work in government buildings or go to college with a scarf. So that created a lot of tension. And when people face someone who was kind of one of them, right, religious, but also promising EU reforms, promising end of corruption, you know, it's kind of Right, irony. so to bring this around, so that, that kind of, that's where Erdogan comes in and, and is able to take up this kind of reformer um, banner is that he, like by this time that yeah. maybe the, you know, the military bureaucracy had been kind of bloated and corrupt and, and whatever value it had had been declining. And so Erdogan positioned himself as I'm going to, under this um, Islamist banner, for lack of a better term, guide Turkey towards a genuine democratic order. So this is, of course, very ironic mm-hmm. thinking about mm-hmm. how things have played out, but that that's how he positioned himself. Like the military represents the kind exactly. of old authoritarian exactly. how, style. And yeah. I'm kind of, this promise of democracy has been lingering in, in Erdogan kind of positioned himself as a kind of someone who's going to actually bring that forth. Is, is that accurate? That, that's pretty accurate. And also just to, not to, like, just to make it more accurate. Um, I mean, even before Erdogan, there was political actors and political, um, there was a not like, like functioning political bureaucracy and system right. also. Of course, military interfered. They were kind of the guardians. They were watching. They let people, they let actors play as long as they just stay, stayed within the limits of the regime, right? Within the rhetoric of the regime. But because the system was so corrupt and due to, due to um, uh, like uh, constant economic crises, People were fed up with the system. And when Erdogan just emerged as the this promising reformist and also mm. kind of a religious guy, unlike the others, uh, publicly, openly religious, people liked him. People considered him as one of them. Uh, he didn't have a privileged background. He was coming from a, a like, um, not poor, but like a, a, not an elite family, clearly. Uh, so just, uh, yeah, he had an appeal. And he wanted to combine this idea of European Union reforms, and he promised to end corruption, promised to end uh, like uh, bans on political bans on headscarf and others, and um, and also poverty. But right now, as of 2020, uh, it's just the opposite. Turkey has <laughs> never been this corrupt, has never been this um, uh, this uh, like like a prison in terms of freedoms. I just, I still have nightmares about Turkey. I, I just dream myself being locked inside Turkey and I'm trying to flee just like all the other journalists and other people who were who man, managed to flee Turkey in the last couple of years. Uh, these are like PTSD, right? In, impact. But it's so true. You know, even people who live in Turkey, they just feel uh, they should not talk about politics. As long as you speak against Erdogan, you just find yourself in jail, even, even over criticizing Erdogan on Twitter, on social media. It's so common and it's a crime to insult the president right now. Okay. So this is, I think, um, you know, I want to hear kind of your, and I, I'm, I'm sure obviously, um, as I said, we're both uh, students of politics here and, and I'm sure there's many different ways this can be kind of analytically sliced and, 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 and understood. But in your understanding, like, I think we have two nice kind of bookends where you talk about 2002 and Erdogan, the reformer, and, and, you know, putting together a reformist coalition that included Islamist and more secular groups in it, right? And in, in, in having this, you know, optimism of reform. And then this other bookend of, as you quite forthrightly put, like traumatic and Turkey devolving into an, into a, a, a full on authoritarian um, state of control. And what, you know, what's your, and, and, and I want to, you know, I want to hear, I, like I said, the, you know, what is your understanding of like how, what were some of the key, I mean, it, it, we could probably have 50 hours of discussion of like uh, what happened over, but like in, in terms of for the, for, from your point of view, like what were some key steps along the way? And I think this is important, not just for understanding um, what happened in Turkey, but I think for helping people all over the world who are witnessing, maybe who are in more 2002, 2003 position where these kinds of troubling things are bubbling up, but it hasn't fully come to maturation. I think you come from someone who's experienced this full cycle. Um, so what are kind of, do you think, some of the key events along this 2002 to late 20 teens period that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Tur- Turkey is a very complex society. It's 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 very difficult. I mean, of course, each country has its complexities, sure. but truly, because of its this hybrid identity stuck between the West and the East, uh, Muslim but trying striving to become a democracy, uh, you know, uh, this oppressive version of secularism for over like almost eighty years that created resentments within society. So there are there were so many fault lines as we call in political science right. uh, so it could take hours but i will try to simplify it um yeah like what are some like i i think of like authoritarianism like it's like it, it you know in, in, in any society as we're learning now is vulnerable to this and it's kind of like water exactly. pushing against the exactly. dam so it's like a metaphor yeah. um you know there's obviously events where the dam starts to break and i mean sad i mean i we should just put it out there i mean in the united states i think you could see this in in january 6th and a lot of things the trump administration did these are like breaks in the levee um, and exactly. so in, in the experience of Turkey, what do you think some of those like breaks in the levee yeah. were? Yeah, going, you know, um, picking up from the U.S. example, nobody would have thought that something like a mob, <laughs> uh, like uh, insurgency in the United States was unthinkable, unimaginable, yet it happened, right? Right. So it just shows us how vulnerable even, even a really, truly democratic society is. But thank God. In the United States, there is rule of law. Uh, despite its shortcomings, um, there is free media and diverse media. I have my criticism of media in the United States. That's other thing that I think it's too politicized. They don't really. Uh, it's too much commentary. Not really news. They are extremely like they are part of the power of the political fight here as well. But it's a whole other debate. But at least there are institutions in the United States. Uh, a strong academia. Uh, strong civil society. So let's say when Trump first introduced the Muslim ban, uh, there was a backlash in society and people who were not necessarily Muslims, they just stood in solidarity with the people and they just protested against it, right? So uh, there is a traditional culture of democracy in the United States. In Turkey, unfortunately, when Erdogan began to target media, when he wanted to, or and successfully managed to uh, destroy, you know, the remaining uh, remnants of judiciary, independent judiciary, there was literally no one, no group, no institution to stop it. So the, the institutions were very weak and vulnerable. Uh, he started with targeting media. But again, if you ask me, I think the uh, starting point of this um slide into dictatorship was the main point. It's, it, it was not only Gezi protests, park protests in Istanbul in summer. It was f- like the first signs of this trend towards authoritarianism. The but sum- it was not summer, the most what, important. What year was that? Uh, so, summer of 2013, uh, shortly before the corruption investigations, people were extremely frustrated over Erdogan's increasing tone of authoritarianism and his own, like... Um, Style, his style of ignoring ignoring uh, different groups in society. So he he was not pluralist enough. He was becoming uh, he was becoming less and less pluralist in his rhetoric, in his actions. So it was one of the first signs. Yet, if you ask me, I would say the beginning of the end was this corruption investigation of December two thousand thirteen, because it was an existential crisis for Erdogan and his family and his dynasty, I would say right now, because they were severely implicated, his, him, himself, he, his, his own son, his own family, and his own cronies. And uh, in order not to be held accountable or just stand in front, on, in front of the court, he literally reversed the whole due process. He reversed the investigation. He um, ordered the... Um, arrest of police officers and the prosecutors who were in charge of the corruption investigation. Uh, The courts and the judges were replaced with loyalists. So I think it was, yeah, it was the most important step. And And the rest followed. So when he considered this as an existential threat and he put his own interest in front of the interest of the country, Things began to like drift into authoritarianism or dictatorship very fast. He targeted media. 
he silenced media institutions which uh, wanted to continue talking about or investigating the corruption. And then it just, uh, of course, you know, when you control the judiciary and media uh, and the business, like other groups, civil society was not really that strong in Turkey in a way. Uh, so he continued, he just um, like uh, tightened the grip on Kurds and there were uh, military operations tar- you know, targeting the Kurdish uh, minority in the Turkey, in, in the country. Uh, so he began to tighten his gri- grip more and more following this corruption investigation because he should have eliminated any threat against his, him staying in power. So media, judiciary, institutions, right now there is not a single institution that is not under the control of the president. Right. And and what in hearing that recounted, I imagine, you know, you, you, see, you pointed to this kind of corruption and, and the steps he took to protect himself um, from it. And, and especially, you know, you mentioned the judiciary and, and in any society, I think, and, and this is what's so chilling about um, what has been taking place in the U.S. and, and elsewhere is... The judiciary is exists in in some ways, and I don't want to get too uh, nerdy, political sciencey, but uh, I mean it's a mental construct. I mean its power is meant is is the is people believe it has power. Um, it doesn't have um, actual means of, of of violence, I guess to put the, put it in stark terms, like police and so forth, under its sway, um, and that. Uh, the moment, like, it seems that the line is traversed where it's like, yeah, you know, judge says, you know, do A and I'm going to do B and there's nothing they can do about it. I mean, that that in most societies is really true. Like mm-hmm. if a circuit mm-hmm. judge in the United States says do A and the president says, well, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess all what what, you know, striking to me in hearing you kind of recount this and I guess. What I'm imagining too, and in, in, uh, to draw a comparison to what has recently happened in the United States, is that, like you mentioned, like who could imagine, like a, a violent mob would storm the Capitol and, and literally put the highest office make office holders in the land under literal life and death kind of threat. God knows what would have happened if they got a hold of one of those people that they were after. And so people say, okay, and I remember this now, and I, and I think we're only a few months after this. And I remember at the time, everyone's like, well, this is it, right? The, the, you know, everyone, and even that famous speech. And I think this is, a, we're thinking about kind of the, the American experience with this, um, Lindsey Graham, uh, you know, I'm done with Trump. This is too much. We've gone too far. And here we are several months later. And not yeah, only is unbelievable. The, yeah. the, the, the Republic, you know, a major one of the only two major parties in the U.S. that, that, that may well control the Congress in a year um, has now said, oh, they're tourists and this is too much and this is not a big deal. And, you know, and so like I'm I'm eerily kind of thinking that you know hearing your recounting from Turkey it's it's not like one day like someone comes on TV and says I'm an authoritarian do what I say oh yes exactly it's just it's just it's it's definitely one step at a time sometimes those steps are uh, you know faster or bigger sometimes slower it depends on the dynamics of the country um, yeah the, the, the U.S. politics is a whole other debate but you know I mean as and also because I'm kind of the outsider here right. i don't want to of course i feel i feel uh i mean i i feel that this is my adopted home now of course uh and i love this country for so many reasons however just when you look at what republicans are doing it's so clear that they are undermining democracy undermining the whole system like uh, the, the system that makes the United States is really great, mm. not only in, in terms of rhetoric. You know, what makes the country great is trust in the system, trust in the judicial system. As you know, when you go to court in the United States, unlike in Turkey, you just know that you won't be persecuted because of your religious background, your national. Of course, there are. I mean, just right. I don't want to, like, I mean, it's not a perfect system, but I'm talking in relative terms, of course. When you go to court in Turkey, you know that it's extremely politicized. And going back to the, you, you ask about the important steps. Of, of course, I cannot skip. Uh, actually, I cannot even uh, over uh, like uh, overemphasize the importance of the failed or um, um, coup attempt that took place in July 15, 2016. Right. Well, maybe you can fill it because. 
yeah, you know, I consider myself someone who like keeps up with things, quote unquote. And I, re- I remember reading about that, and at least like as someone who consumes kind of main like Washington Post and The Economist and New York Times, like you know, and so I read a good amount about that. And I remember there were you know at least the Erdogan administration. That's where that is. You mentioned the Gulan movement. That's that gentleman who lives mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania now, right? Yes, right. Pennsylvania. Right. Yes. And and, and yeah. so like. And, and other people are saying, no, it was the military making one last gasp to kind of like rein in Erdogan. And I, but I really was never clear as to exactly what happened there. Because I think you said this coup was this like other major turning point. And to me, at least as someone who I think I try to keep up with these things, I could never really fully figure out what went on. And, and, and for a good reason, because nobody really knows what happened, because there is no real uh, true investigation, no free media. Uh, you have to, when it comes to coup attempt, okay, I will just, uh, so many, there are so many people who are likens it to Hitler's Reichstag fire. Right, because so, it, it just for it, our listeners, like he Erdogan was just put under like like theor- as the story goes, he was put under house arrest. He was on vacation, and like the the very bare bones like idea was that, and then like people like some people surrounded him and said he was under arrest or something. Is that it? Oh no, no, no! It didn't. It didn't go to that point. First of all, uh, he has conflicting remarks about how he learned the coup. So it's clear that he is lying about the time that he learned the so-called coup attempt. Mm. It's clear that. There were some people within the military that they 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 were they were convinced that there was going to be a coup attempt, like hierarchical coup attempt. But it seems that okay, it's a bit complicated. But the uh, then chief of staff made his own um, soldiers. Some of the um, uh, generals made believe that he was going to be in charge of the coup attempt while he was actually cooperating with the regime. So they were some people were fooled into thinking that there was actually a coup attempt. And the government definitely and intelligence knew about all this. But in order to benefit from the results of this so-called coup attempt, they let it happen. And as, as a result of this, because Ardant called people onto streets, uh, over 200 civilians died, along with so many innocent, mm. like junior level uh, soldiers, privates, they were literally slashed. Their throats were slashed, actually. You know, uh, so they were uh, basically the, the 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 so many soldiers on the night of the coup. Uh, they were not aware of the um, situation. They were just following the orders, and some of them were executed in an ISIS style, like uh, throat cutting. Uh, and such things never happened in Turkey before. So there are so many signs that Erdogan actually created his own militia with the support of these um, extremist fighters in Syria. That's a whole other debate because he supported the war in Syria, right? right? He was against against uh, the Syrian embattled Syrian president Bashar al-Assad. Uh, so he was supporting the extremist uh, fighters, jihadists over there. Well, that and that's where... There's a Kurdish kind of because comp- he saw this as a pretext to move against kind of the Kurdish. Not only Kurds, but mainly as a pretext to purge the Gulen movement sympathizers and followers in the country. Remember, let's go back to the corruption investigation in late 2013. So he targeted the media institutions that are with real or perceived links to the Gulen movement, including my media group, which was also inspired by his teachings at the time. Uh, But also Erdogan held this movement responsible for the investigations against him because Gulen movement had significant uh, impact within bureaucracy. So it's hard to measure because nobody really knows. There is not an official ID ID card or anything. It's like a sympathy towards the movement. But many people believe that the Gulen movement had a lot of power within the police judiciary. What Erdogan needed, he needed a pretext. He needed a good reason to purge these people unlawfully because he didn't have any evidence. And then... After this uh, coup attempt, which Erdogan called a gift from God, he literally called it a gift from God on the night of the coup attempt. Uh, And uh, the next day, 5,000 judges and prosecutors were purged. And the purge, the massive purge is still ongoing. So 
the military has been crippled, not only military, but okay, you can understand that you can target the military after a real or like a plan, like imagined or constructed, whatever you call it, uh, coup attempt. But uh, academics, judges and prosecutors, journalists, even like housewives have been uh, jailed after the coup attempt for alleged links to or uh, alleged links to the coup attempt just because of their affiliation with the Gulen movement. So there is right now a massive purge going on in Turkey, uh, and even like uh, housewives or regular people from uh, women from. Uh, from all walks of, of, of life are jailed, even with their babies, literally, oh. infants and babies, just because they are linked to the Gulen movement. So it's it's really, really brutal. It's really, really massive. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's not, it's not even controversial. It's just taking, and that's why it was unimaginable. If you asked me 10 years ago that, something like this would have happened, I would I would just say not even my wildest dream. Well, if you don't mind, and, and I think obviously it seems that you worked for an organization that was connected to this Gulam movement. Um, and I would imagine um, a large portion of our listeners, um, it, to the extent they're familiar with it, it, is only vaguely. And so, and it seems that this is a certainly an important part of the story. Um, sure. And it's, it's certainly tied to this individual. And weirdly enough, and I'm sure you watch this with somewhat of a fascination, if not total mystification. Um, this gentleman, right, was, I mean, that's where too, when we're talking about Trump and Erdogan, um, we don't need to like read between the lines. Like they were very close, quote unquote, friends. I mean, Trump doesn't really have mm-hmm. friends, but mm-hmm. Trump really looked up to him and, and was, you know, saw him yeah. as kind of a role model. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. that should be also in the back of people's minds, um, thinking about how much Trump saw Erdogan as a role model and, and hearing you recount exactly the kinds of things Erdogan did. But um, there's this weird story that that nutcase um, Michael Flynn um, oh, yes. was was involved with some sort of surreptitious like deal to abduct um, this exactly. gentleman in Pennsylvania from uh, Pennsylvania and bring him in back return to, for yeah. And so I mean, there, so the links there are not we're not just like you know it's not like kind of reading tea leaves and, and drawing connections. I mean, there, there's some cases quite explicit. And um, so maybe circling back, what what is the Gulan movement? Who is this gentleman? Is his name Gulan? I, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm not really. Uh, his, his last name is Gulan. Fethullah Gulan is an Islamic scholar from Turkey. He has been in exi- exile, in self-imposed exile in the United States since 1990, 1999, sorry, not 1990. He has been in, in Pennsylvania in, in kind of a in seclusion uh, since 1999. Uh, and the, I was impressed by his teachings mainly because he was advocating a kind of a more tolerant, westernized ver- version of Islam. So he was against uh, he he was he, he was one of the few Islamic scholars who openly condemned violence, uh, suicide bombers, 9/11. So basically, personally, I like these ideas because in a in a in a geography in a region where there was extremists. I saw this as an alternative to, you know, as like a third road, you know. Uh, but I, right now I have my own criticisms of the movement on him, in him as well. That's a whole other debate. But, um, yes, I worked for a media organization that was, uh, that was kind of not owned or controlled, but inspired. The people, the executives, people who ran the newspaper were inspired by his teachings. But when I was working there, there honestly, I was never imposed anything. I was able to speak my mind and write my own you know, ideas. Uh, but that was the idea, that was the perception. Uh, and uh, before, before the corruption investigations, Gulen and Erdogan were considered kind of allies. And it's true that they had a political alliance because it was uh, a win-win situation for both of them. Erdogan benefited from the bureaucratic uh, cadres, bureaucratic um, team staff that uh, Gulen movement had inspired. Mm. And uh, Gulen movement benefited from this government, which was sympathetic towards its goals, you know, opening schools abroad, uh, you know, just uh, this kind of a moderate Islam, a moderate religious movement. Uh, so that it was kind of a win-win situation. But when Erdogan uh, c- considered the movement responsible for the corruption investigations, uh, and the, the, he, stay, he just waged a very brutal war against the movement. So he has been trying to exterminate the movement 
alien outside Turkey. He's even abducting people. Gülen Mumun linked teachers from abroad. Uh, I think Gülen Mumun has even schools in Asia, in Korea, in Japan. I believe they have uh, Mumun-inspired schools, and they are pretty successful. So it's basically, it started out as an educational, like spiritual movement. But over time, it gained influence in politics, and Erdogan considered this as a threat. In a nutshell, let's just summarize the situation. Yeah. So, if you don't mind, I do as a as a kind of closing um, question, and and just want to sure. hear your thoughts on and in, in kind of both sides of this. Uh, as we've mentioned, we both kind of uh, have have a background in studying politics and political science. Um, and one thing we learn in that is that even the most authoritarian governments have constituencies, right? And, and people that support them, um, both popularly and obviously within the government. And in, in, in a lot of cases, obviously within the government, as you've mentioned, Erdogan's kind of stacked the elite positions with people and even lower level positions with supporters. But I'm, I'm curious more in terms of popular society or the public where Erdogan draws his support from. And then on the flip side of that, um, I, I, you know, I found um, your description of what's going on in Turkey um, trouble, you know, upsetting and, and and awful, and and honestly, maybe even worse than I realized. Erdogan was a, a very unsavory in character, but um, with the extent of political prisoners and um, abductions and so forth, I, I didn't perhaps realize the extent. Um, but that said, what is the nature of resistance or what is the status of opposition movements within Turkey? So I guess those are my two questions, yeah, kind of. Yeah, there is definitely a huge climate of fear. Uh, people are scared to speak up because of this. Uh, everybody knows that the moment you speak up, you could easily be labeled Gülenist, even though you are not related to the movement. So nowadays it's the uh, biggest scapegoat. And people are scared of being, that's, good, that's one of the worst things that could happen to you nowadays in Turkey. If you are labeled Gülenist in Turkey, it's just like being a Jew in Nazi Germany. So people are scared. Um, there is no ju- ju- the free, uh, free judiciary. Um, there is no free media. Even the so-called minor uh, opposition media or critical media, they have to repeat the narrative of the government. The moment you question the coup attempt, let's say, you are in trouble. And, and as far as the politi- uh, opposition political parties, they are fragmented divided and not strong enough unfortunately and also they also repeat the same rhetoric with the government when it comes to this um, coup attempt so as long as i think Erdogan just allows them to um well he also threatens it's just as as recent as yesterday he threatened literally threatened a female opposition leader uh, because she was attacked in Erdogan's hometown yesterday, a few days ago and said, oh, these are the good days. Let's see what's, what else is going to happen. So he doesn't mind targeting the opposition leaders. Uh, there is not much hope uh, in terms, you know, in the foreseeable future, I believe. Uh, and uh, he even repeated the uh, Istanbul mayor election, mayoral elections when he lost the elections. So be, just over a, I mean, he, he just used uh, a pretext to repeat the elections. So there is no free and fair elections in Turkey anymore. But uh, in the background, in the um, during uh, the COVID, the economic situation in Turkey, because of massive corrupt, uh, corruption, it's getting worse. And even people who used to benefit from the government, they begin to complain more and more, uh, louder and louder. And as you know, economy is the biggest drive for so many people. So people, even who, uh, even those who don't care about massive human rights violations and democracy in the country, they are not supporting the government anymore. But he still has some popular support. But right now, it's really hard to tell because people have two uh, opinions: their public opinion and their private opinion. Uh, because they are scared. They are. I mean, literally, people. If you just people who are. A stating opinion on the streets, they could be uh, jailed just for insulting the president nowadays. People people are afraid to speak up. Um, yeah, so, but I think it's eroding. His support is eroding. If there was free and fair elections right now, he would definitely lose despite the fragmented and weak opposition. Uh, people are unhappy. Turkish economy is uh, like getting worse and worse by the day. Um, uh, and people have grievances, but it's kind of too late because 
people did not um, speak up enough when the first massive corruption investigations broke out. They said, oh, okay, everybody's corrupt in Turkey, so be it. He's at least working, he's delivering. So I think right now people are paying the price, heavy price, of um, turning a blind eye to massive corruption and massive human rights violations in the um, wake of the coup attempt in 2016. Right. I mean, it really does kind of, you know, this um, specific um, experiences and, and ongoing experiences in Turkey really do indicate that, like, I don't want to sound too like sappy or cheesy, but like, you know, civil society is a really sacred space. And, true, and when true. it closes, yeah. it is very hard to get it back open because yeah, exactly. it becomes like, it becomes a self, you know, a kind of negative feedback loop, right? Where the state is able to, and a lot of what you're describing is, it's so eerily um, familiar to the situation in South Korea in the seventies under the, the height of the military dictatorship and, and even into the eighties, um, where the state basically, this was before Twitter and, and social media, but the state used to just put people in bars and restaurants. Um, you know, you, people would get dragged into the intelligence and say, like, I heard you say something bad last night about the president. Yeah, know, believe it or not, it's happening right now in Turkey. So people are using uh, informants, uh, neighbors tipping on uh, or uh, other other people, neighbors. So... Uh, the regime has been using all these anonymous resources to jail people. So there is no rule of law. That's 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 that's, and it's happening right. as of 2021. Once that seal closes, yeah, I think this is like you're saying. It, it's very hard to come back from in any sort of, um, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it because all the windows that all the mechanisms that one would try to use to reopen civil society to reopen um, expression are themselves kind of verboten or one has to run the risk of imprisonment or even other physical violent actions um, to do that. And that's a very difficult calculus for anyone to, to make. So Exactly. That's why it's important to move uh, in a timely manner, speak up as a whole society um, before it's too late. Well, that is as good a place, um, as any to leave it. Sevki, thank you so much for, you know, sharing your own personal experiences. And I think for listeners, um, really opening our eyes to the situation in Turkey, but also I think for people who are listening around the world, um, and maybe, um, in different stages of this process of a closing of civil society or breaking down of certain norms or values, I mean, look at Belarus recently, just to give a recent example. In the heart of Europe, a dictator from a small country called Belarus has diverted the plane and uh, the plane landed and they just literally abducted, took out a journalist and now he is just facing death penalty. And this is 2021 and it's happening like literally in the heart of it. Right. And that in Belarus is kind of already, you know, fully kind of consolidated authoritarianism. But I, I, yeah. I think what countries that come to mind are Brazil, um, also thinking about Poland, obviously oh, yeah. Hungary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hungary. It, it, yeah. I mean, it, India. India I, and, you know, I, I would include the Netanyahu regime in Israel, um, certainly, mm -hmm. as, you know, mm -hmm. it's it, it, perhaps it, all of these play out in their own social and historical context, mm -hmm. um, but are following an eerily and in, in, in somewhat dangerous similar trend, um, these kind of piecemeal and, and just, and like you said, this, this, this one thing that I'm hearing you talk about Erdogan, you think about Bolsonaro, you think about Trump, um, you think about Putin, of yeah, course, Putin, Russia. Is this mm -hmm. notion everyone's corrupt, nothing matters? I mean, it's 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 authoritarianism via nihilism, right? Uh, preying upon it, and it, it, this this seems to be something that is a common theme that stretches across very different cultures, very different societies, um, and is quite it's dangerous because it is effective. Oh, everyone's a crook. Yeah, we are going, well, like Trump said, yeah, everyone's yeah, we are, a crook. We are going through, yeah. I'm your crook. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was kind of his his shtick. Well, th thank God the United States was able to kind of undo this historic mistake and uh, like an anomaly, I would say. But not all countries are that lucky or that right. constant. Well, that's, in terms of democracy. that's what's frightening to me hearing kind of your story um, is that Though things are for now have kind of leveled, um, in some ways the 
the kind of ball has been pushed further down the field. And, and I just think about all of this stuff in terms of questioning elections and, you know, um, trying to throw out votes. Um, they didn't have the legal mechanisms to do that, but they are in a process of trying to institute a set of laws to legally make it much easier to throw out hundreds of thousands of votes. So, yeah, I mean, once that Pandora's box is open, as you've been describing, it, it's very hard to close it. And now that we're going to be debating like these local canvassers in places like Michigan and Georgia, it it that's a norm that has, you know, is has been... Yeah, that, that's why we have to be vigilant everywhere in the world. You know, we should we should not take democracy and it sounds cheesy now. We should not take it for granted, but it's so right. Okay, well, thank you so much, Sevgia. It's so thank good you, to Ken. have this chance. It was great catching up yeah. with you after so many years. Right. Uh, yeah, thank you for I having me on your on your podcast. I enjoyed it. 